Let's get this show on the road. Grab a seat. I know I told you to meet each other, and now it's happening, and now I'm stopping it. Sorry. This is random, but I just want to say, maybe I felt led to say, I know everyone in here, some of you I don't know well, but I just want to tell you guys that I like you. Like, you're my part of our church, you know, uh, but I just really like you guys. Every single one of you, as I saw you walking, I was like, I just like these people that go to my church. So I'm happy you're here. Uh, and that's the end of the compliment. Um, a week from today, we are going to gather in this building, but not at 5 p.m. We're going to gather at 10.30 in the morning with Calvary Baptist Church. We're going to do a joint service again. Happens to be Super Bowl Sunday. I might want to watch the game in the evening. I don't know. Maybe you will, too. We're just, yeah, we're just joining with them at 10.30 a.m. Valley Church will lead worship. Pastor Brett from Calvary Baptist will preach. It'll be wonderful. And if you have evening plans, then great. You get to go do them after church on Sunday. So don't come here at 5 next week. Come here at 10.30 in the morning, not at night. Um, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 24 tonight. We get to cover, we get to cover a whole chapter again. Who's excited? Woo, me. Uh, not only do we get to cover 51 verses, probably a personal record, I don't know, we get to talk about the rapture and the end of the world. Anyone pumped? No? Okay, cool. Um, if you weren't interested, maybe you are now, at least a little bit. I asked my community this question on Tuesday, but I'll ask you guys just to think about it. Scale from 1 to 10, when it comes to the end times, 1 being I literally never, ever think about it, 10 being I think about it all the time. I'm on like prophecy charts and graphs and timeline websites, that sort of thing. Five is like, yeah, I've had some seasons where I was interested in it. Where are you at? You don't have to tell me, you don't have to shout it out, but just think about it. Where are you on that scale of end times interest? I think that I said I was at like a three. Uh, so if that helps you feel free to like be a one, then be a one, it's cool. Um, if you're not thinking about it much now, I bet it might have been on your mind in the last few years at some point. When I think about all that's happened since 2020 until now, it's pretty crazy. I'm just going to compile a happy list. Uh, COVID, uh, it's not a happy list. Uh, political issues and division and racial issues and rioting and looting and wars and in Afghanistan and Ukraine and wildfires that burned all along the West Coast and turned our sky red and black. If you were looking at the sky, and the news at just the right time a few years ago, you probably thought, Jesus, are you coming back right now? Because what is going on? Um, so the questions about the end times have consumed many, many Christians over the years. When is the end? When will the rapture? What is the rapture? Is that even a thing? What about a tribulation, a millennium, a premillennium, a post, an amillennium? What are all these things? What are the signs? How can we know that this is coming? Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines and sun and moon being darkened and stars falling from the sky. All this stuff just making you really excited to dig into it like I am. Okay, cool. These topics have occupied the minds of some so much that they actually put together charts of fulfilled prophecies versus unfulfilled prophecies and these like scales, like a prophetic index of like how close are we? And they put news feeds together that link all this info together. I'm not telling you to go look for it, but it would be entertaining if you did, I'm just saying. Um, all this info that put together so that we could know if Jesus's return is imminent. Try to put a date on it, perhaps. It makes me think about any Parks and Rec fans, the reasonablest um, cult that have that party at the end of the, yeah, with the flutes, yep. 
You're welcome. You can think about that while we talk about this. Um, we haven't even talked about Left Behind yet. Do you guys want to talk about Left Behind? The books, Kirk Cameron, the OG, Nick Cage. Eh. Um, the scene with the airplane and the clothes being left, like we are fascinated with the end. Maybe not all the time, but we have moments and seasons for sure. In our passage tonight, Matthew 24, if we let him, Jesus might set some things straight for us. Answer some questions. Also maybe show us where we have perhaps been asking the wrong questions or trying to make these scriptures answer questions that we don't maybe have to ask or answer questions it's not intending to ask. Um, So I'm hoping that this passage will um, give us um, the people of God encouragement and instruction in how we live and what can feel like the end of the world. Um, Full disclosure, my understanding of Matthew 24 is heavily influenced, and by heavily I mean completely, (laughs) completely influenced by one of my seminary teachers, Gary Brashears. Um, I even asked him to come teach on this, and he said no, because he was unavailable. Um, But he sent me his notes. I had his notes from when I was in class with him, and his PowerPoint. We're not going to have his PowerPoint up, but basically, my understanding of this passage is coming from his interpretation, which is not uniquely his. It's very old and ancient. He's not old and ancient, but his viewpoint is rooted in church history is what I mean to say. He is a little bit old. Um, Sorry, Gary. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read it all up front, but we are going to take a little bit at a time and stop to talk through as we go. You guys ready to do a whole whole chapter? Uh, Brief background, in case you missed last week, Jesus, in chapter 23, has just finished, like, laying into the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and their rejection of him. He just told them that judgment was coming on them for this. And he says in chapter 23, 35 and 36, all the judgment that he had been describing, he said, all this is going to come on this generation, that generation of religious leaders and Pharisees. Um, And then he says a few verses later in 38, he says, your house is left to you desolate, meaning you guys are on your own. I am not with you. I am not there in that temple anymore. You're on your own. And so this is kind of a continuation of that thought in chapter 24, verses one and two. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. I've got a video. It's going to just play in the background while I talk a little bit. It's a digital rendering of what the temple may have looked like around the time of Jesus. Um, So Jesus and his disciples have left the temple. That scene in chapter 23 happened in and around there. They walk away through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, and uh, they're having this conversation there where they have a vantage point where they can kind of see, I've been there, you can just see the whole thing laid out right there, the temple and all these buildings and the disciples are like, I like that temple. That's a nice temple. What do you think, Jesus? And uh, that was a Shrek reference, and I really wish that someone would have got it. Um, the foundation stones of this temple are incredibly massive. We got to stand by one of them along the Western Wall, or sometimes called the Wailing Wall, and see just how massive. It's unbelievably big. So it's one of the lower level stones in the Western Wall. I think it weighs something like 200 to 300 tons or something like that. Um, Yes, yes, Kevin, one rock. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're, they're marveling at it as well, Kevin. You're, you're right there with them. 
The temple was something to behold, for sure. Yes, you were. Well done. I asked him to do that, so just shout it out, Kevin. One rock? He did it. Um, and then Jesus kind of kills the mood a little bit, and he's like, yeah, it is cool, but it's all about to be decimated. Not a single stone left on another. So how could they get the stones on top? Yes, how could they destroy such an impressive structure? So we, we read this, and we think, like, wow, that's crazy that the temple was going to, you know, such a beautiful, huge building would be torn down. But put ourselves in the mind of the disciples, it would have meant a lot more than that. Um, the destruction of the temple would, would be like the end of the world to them, the end of life as they knew it. It was the center of their life, even if they didn't live in Jerusalem. It was the place of God's presence. Um, it's not even close to the same. But just imagine, like, our country was invaded, and every single government building, including the White House, was just torn down, burnt down, absolutely gone. That would rock our world quite a bit. Um, America, as we know it, would cease to exist. Uh, it would feel like the end of our world. And that's what's happening when Jesus is saying, like, hey, not a single stone is gonna be left on top of another stone. Like, this whole thing is going down. And then the disciples' next questions reveal what they thought about that. So they ask in verse three, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? This referring to the destruction of the temple. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they asked two questions. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus says, temple's going down and the disciples, when? And when is the end of the age? The implication is that they think that the destruction of the temple means the end of the world is coming. They're like, okay, temple's going away, so are we moving into the next phase of humanity? But Jesus answers these two questions separately. He answers the first question, when will this happen? Um, this referring to the destruction of the temple, and he answers that question in verses four through 35. So separate that in your mind. Verses four through 35 is Jesus answering the question, when is the temple going down? And then he answers the second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Answers that in verses 36 through 51. Now, that paragraph that I just shared, two separate questions, two separate answers of Jesus, that is debated amongst Bible scholars. There are some very clear clues I think um, that Jesus is referring to separate questions and separate events, but people much, much smarter than I um, would disagree. So I'll show you the cards up front um, so that when we get to those verses, you'll know what I'm talking about. In verses four through 35, the section where he's addressing when the end of the temple is coming, in 34, Jesus says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So he's referring to all that he's described in verses four through 35. It's also tagged back to the end of 23 that we read earlier. Jesus pronouncing the judgment on the Pharisees saying this, ju this judgment is coming on you guys. Like in this generation, he describes the destruction of the temple, how they could tell when that was about to happen and says in 34, this, gen this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Meaning all that he's about to describe in verses four through 35 were fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. And then, so that's, that's the first clue that Jesus says this generation will not pass away. I think you have to do some fancy footwork biblically to explain how that doesn't apply to that generation. I mean, it seems clear to me. Um, and then in verse 36, he says, but about 
that day and hour, no one knows. So he switched there into the second part of the question where they ask about the coming of uh, Jesus again and the end of the age. He says about that day and hour, no one knows. Two quick things, that, those two words, that day. If we were steeped in the Old Testament like we wish that we could be and as much as the disciples would have been or people reading this back in the time of Jesus, those two words that day are, would like ping your mind and you would go, oh, we're talking about the future day of the Lord. This is, if you search that word that day or day of the Lord in the Old Testament, you would find many, many results in the prophets about the future day of the Lord where God returns to reign, resurrects the dead, destroys evil, it's the new, it's the next age that the disciples are referring to. And so Jesus says here in Matthew, concerning that day, not, not the stuff happening in this generation, but concerning that day, no one knows. No one knows when it's happening, not even Jesus. So verse four through 35, all of this is gonna happen to that generation of Jesus. And verses 36 through 51, about that day, not even Jesus himself knows what it, uh, when it will be. So I think it's clear to me we're talking about two separate things. If you happen to have had a season where you're studying the end times and you don't agree with that, that's okay. We can still be friends and I still like you. A little less, but it's fine. Um, I think it's two separate questions. We good to move on from there? Okay, let's look at verses four through 14. We're gonna deal with that section now. In response to their two questions, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So that section is about the Jesus' generation and the coming destruction of the temple. And I'll get to this later, but I will also say that also is a blueprint for I think the, the trials that the church will go through even in the future. And so if you read through this and you're like, check, check right now, like all these things are happening to us too. I think that's part of the point is that these were a, a blueprint for the, the church back then, the disciples back then, and even back in the Old Testament, and we can see them now and go like, man, something, something is up. But those verses, they're about Jesus preparing his disciples to see when this destruction of the temple was coming. Um, false messiahs, wars, and rumors of wars, nations and kingdoms rising up against other nations and kingdoms, famines and earthquakes, Christians being persecuted, put to death, experiencing hatred because of Jesus, many Christians turning away from their faith and betraying and hating their fellow Christians, more false prophets, wickedness will increase, people's love will grow cold. But amidst all that, the gospel, Jesus promised, would still go out and spread to the known world. And then the end would come. Not the end of the world, 
the, uh, the destruction of the temple that Jesus referred to already. Jesus also issued a couple encouragements and commands to his disciples kind of in the midst of this to remember. Um, remember for when all these things were happening, told them to watch out, to don't be alarmed, don't be deceived, to stand firm. Those, thi- those are the kind of application points, if you will. We're gonna come back to those a little bit at the end of this, and then also that's gonna be the focus of two weeks from now. Um, so we're gonna look at verses 15 through 22 now. So, When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. We don't. (laughs) Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one in the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Can we first agree that abomination that causes desolation is the coolest phrase ever? If you need a name for your heavy metal band, you got, you got one. Um, it is a reference to a passage in the book of Daniel and most Bible scholars think Daniel was predicting the uh, being invaded by Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Greek king. I wrote Syrian, but I'm pretty sure he was a Greek king. Um, invaded the Jewish temple in 167 BC, sacrificed a pig on the altar, an unclean animal, put up a statue of Olympian Zeus. Um, it was a desecrating abomination in their temple. Um, it would later spur on Judas Maccabeus to attack um, and overthrow Antiochus in the Maccabean revolt. Um, so Jesus is using the language of Daniel, something that would have been incredibly familiar to these people, um, to talk about something that was about to happen in their generation, the people he was talking to. So this is like a new abomination that causes desolation. And again, most scholars believe Jesus is referring to when Rome would invade Jerusalem and the temple and they would destroy it. They would declare Titus emperor and Lord over Jesus. They would make sacrifices to their gods in that temple. So he's referring to this kind of new version of what Daniel was referring to, but it would happen to present day Israel. And Jesus is saying, when you see this happening, the abomination in the temple, get out Run for your lives. Don't take anything with you. It will be such a dreadful experience. He pities pregnant and nursing mothers, tells them to pray that it doesn't happen in the winter or on the Sabbath where they would be you know, unprepared. The distress of this event would be unprecedented. That's the original use of that word, and we co-opted it for COVID. That wasn't unprecedented. This time of evacuation during Rome's siege of Jerusalem, that was unprecedented. And then he says in verse 22 that if the Lord hadn't cut those days short, that perhaps all of Israel would have been wiped out. But he says, for the sake of the elect, which in this context doesn't mean what it means in more reformed circles, it means the faithful of God's chosen people, Israel. And so the invasion of Jerusalem would be absolutely horrific. Jesus tells them, when you see it happening, get out. And he promises that he would limit the scope of the carnage to preserve a faithful remnant of Israel. Verse 23, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. 
So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Jesus basically repeats something he said before. Don't listen when people say, we've found the Messiah. Here is our Savior. He's out in the woods or he's down in that basement. Jesus basically says, you will not miss the Messiah when he comes. Like vultures hovering over a carcass, wherever there's a false Messiah, people are going to be deceived. Verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Keep in mind, we're still talking about Jesus letting us know when the destruction of the temple is coming. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So here Jesus quotes another passage from the Old Testament. This time it's in Isaiah. It's a prophetic and apocalyptic passage. In Isaiah, it's about the coming destruction of pagan nations like Babylon. And now Jesus is using that language. He's borrowing the language that was about Israel's enemies and he's applying it to Israel, to themselves. Uh, making the point essentially that Jerusalem has become like a pagan nation in their rejection of God. Now this passage, I think, though I believe it's about the destruction of the temple, it is the most like end timesy language, like the coming of the Son of Man. And so I understand why people read this and think, how can this be just about the destruction of the temple? Wouldn't it also be about the future? And it might be. Um, so some scholars think the passage refers to the second coming of Jesus coming on the clouds. But if you look a few verses down in verse 34, it still says all of this will come on this generation. So the textual clues still convince me that even though we're using end times apocalyptic type language, Jesus is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so what does he mean when he's talking about um, the son of man coming on the clouds and the trumpet call and sending the angels to the corners of the earth to gather the elect? If you are a Bible nerd who doesn't think this is about Jesus' Jesus's return, then the option is that this passage is about Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that that's the language that he's using, though it sounds like um, end times language. He's actually saying this is about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He's using the language from Daniel, um, which describes like the exaltation and the vindication of one called a son of man. You can find that in Daniel, um, the son of man coming on the clouds. And I think Jesus is saying that this is, will be fulfilled uh, when he is uh, resurrected from the dead and ascended up to the right hand of the Father, kind of through the clouds into heaven. So that's what I think is happening there. The word angels often means spiritual being. That's kind of the only way we use it. Um, the Greek word is angelos, which means uh, like a messenger or an envoy. Um, and so again, a lot of scholars believe this isn't referring to spiritual beings like gathering Christians from all over the world, but it's um, Jesus commissioning his disciples as messengers or envoys to preach the gospel and gather or bring in the people of God into the family of God and sending them out into the known world at the time. 
gathering the faithful of God, the people that recognize Jesus as Messiah. 32 through 35. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Again, it seems very clear to me Jesus is kind of bracketing his response and saying, all that I've been talking about is about the destruction of the temple. So he closes the first section saying, when you see all these things, and we have to think back, he's talking about wars, earthquakes, famine, persecution, false messiahs, the abomination in the temple, the vindication and exaltation of the Son of Man. He says, when you see all that, you can know that this, this calamity, the destruction of the temple is right around the corner in the same way that a fig tree can tell you when summer is coming, when you see these signs, be ready. He says, surely I will tell you this will all happen on this generation, the generation he was speaking to. Um, that last sentence, um, some scholars think, I think most, uh, that heaven and earth is a symbolic way of talking about the temple because it's the place where God's presence is, exists on the earth where God dwells with men um, so Jesus closes the section saying, the temple may go away, but me and my word will always be with you. And so now we have a shift to something coming much later. Verse two says the whole temple is gonna be destroyed, every brick. The disciples ask, when will this happen? And that's what he answered just now. But they also ask, when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that's what he's gonna address in verse 36. So let's read 36 through 41. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in, those, in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. So again, the first clue that we have that Jesus has moved on, he's kind of, he's shifted gears, talking about something else is when he says about that day. Old Testament prophetic day of the Lord vibes all over it. It's not to us, but to someone that knew their Hebrew Bible well, that would have been, I think, an obvious indication that Jesus moved on and is talking about this future day where the Messiah returns resurrects his people, reigns as king, destroys his enemies, and so on. And so Jesus says, about that day, they ask, like, hey, when's this gonna happen? How are we gonna know? He's like, you won't. No one knows what will happen except the Father. Not even Jesus knew in that moment when the day would come. That is a staggering fact about the incarnation of Jesus. We call it his humiliation, not that he was embarrassed, but that he humbled himself. So Paul in Philippians says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man and becoming obedient to death on a cross. He would undergo the process of being alive in a human body, experience pain and hunger and fatigue, and apparently would lay aside his omniscience, his knowing of everything as the son of man. So he doesn't even know when that day is. So the disciples ask, when's this gonna happen? How are we gonna know? Jesus says, you won't know. I don't even know. It will be a bit of a surprise. Like the flood that surprised people at the time of Noah, 
It'll be as surprising as working in a field or grinding grill at a, um, grain at a mill. All of a sudden, your friend is gone. <laughs> These verses um, are some that people use to talk about the concept of the rapture, which we will come back to at the end. Um, but Jesus' point here is that it will be surprising. Paul describes the day of the Lord in Thessalonians as coming like a thief in the night. And then the rest of chapter uh, 24 and much of chapter 25 is about how Jesus wants us to live in the light of the fact that we don't know. Um, and so in two weeks from now, that's what like, we're gonna focus on is this, these next verses, we'll focus on those and then the first two sections of chapter 25. But we'll read the rest of the chapter. Verses 42 to 44. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not left his, uh, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus says, keep watch. You don't know when this is happening. If a person knew when a burglar was going to break into their house, say at 2 a.m., they wouldn't let themselves get all cozy and relaxed under a blanket at midnight thinking, now just snooze for a little bit. They would be like, I've got to stay awake and wait for this to happen and be alert and watchful and drink some coffee and splash some water on your face. Probably also call the police and make, make it so that they don't break into your house. But uh, Jesus wants us to be similarly ready for him, alert and watching. You don't know when it's happening, so we should be ready. And then in the last passage of this chapter, gives us another image of, of how he wants us to be ready, what it should look like. Verse 45 through 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this image, in this metaphor, the master of a house puts a servant in charge of the other servants. The good one, the wise one is working hard, taking care of the house and the other servants. He's doing that when the master comes home. The one who gets punished is the one who is not only not working, not doing his job, but he is mistreating his other servants and partying with drunkards. Jesus says that the hypocrite will be caught surprised when the master returns and will experience terrible judgment. That's chapter 24. We did it. 51 verses. Um, I think the most important parts of this section that we're in are what we just read, the end of 24, and then the beginning, like the first... Um, half of chapter 25, which again, we're gonna go over in two weeks. Um, I don't wanna rush them. I don't have time to go to give them like the, the explanation and the thought that they deserve. And so I, it's like a whole separate message on what we do in light of what we just read. So I'm skipping that part for tonight um, and we'll do that in two weeks. Um, but I will give a short preview. In chapter 24, the instructions from Jesus, like all throughout chapter 24, are to watch out for deception don't be alarmed when things go bad and stand firm in your faith. That's what a, a person of Jesus should be like kind of pulling from this as a paradigm for how we live. It's what he instructed his disciples to do as they went through something like that. Watch out for deception. Don't be alarmed when things go bad. Stand firm in your faith. 
The instructions were given to Jesus' generation to those particular disciples as they watched for the invasion of Rome to destroy the temple. But Jesus had taken language from uh, Isaiah and Daniel, which were given to God's people um, when they were under Babylonian exile. And they were also applied to people um, after the time of Daniel when they were being attacked by that uh, Greek king Antiochus. And so now he's bringing that same language as instruction and encouragement to his people and his time dealing with Rome right around the corner. And so I think that we can safely say that Jesus' words here provide a blueprint for us about how we, as his people, um, respond and wait for his return during the turmoil that we face in life. Actual earthquakes and fires and famines and wars and false messages of hope, aka false messiahs, a failing Christianity, people abandoning faith. We are to watch out for deception, not be alarmed when things go bad and stand firm. And then the last passages of chapter 24 and the first two of 25 give three kind of parables or metaphors, um, all of which are a warning and an encouragement, each with its own angle, to be obedient and faithful with the time and resources that God has given us because we don't know when he's coming back. So that's what we're gonna dig into in two weeks. Um, That's what I think the last story of chapter 24 the master and the servants is about, and I think that's what the first two stories of chapter 25 are about, and therefore they, be, they belong together. They are making the same point. I don't know why the chapter divisions are broken up the way they are, but I think they all belong together. So that's what next week will be about, watching out, standing firm, being alert but not alarmed, being faithful with the time and resources God has given us. It needs its own message. And so we're gonna end tonight with something a little less practical but still important, which is to deal with, like, a stepped back overview of like end times theological terms. I hesitate to say that because I don't know them all and what they all mean. Um, So I'm not presenting a comprehensive overview, Um, but I mostly want to deal with the concept of the rapture because that comes up in these verses and if you've been reading the Bible for a while, maybe maybe that um, these verses mean something like that to you. And so I kind of want to maybe clear some things up. Um, Before we talk about some fun eschatological words. The early church narrowed down for us the essential doctrinal belief to be considered orthodox when it comes to the end times. That work is, I think, done for us. In the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, these are both very old, um, which is a good thing, um, and they represent how the early church clarified and narrowed down the essentials when it comes to what we expect in our future. They say something like this about a second coming. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. If this is all that you know, that is enough. If that's all that you care about when it comes to the end times, that's okay. We don't know when, how, or what it will look like. All we know is he's coming back to establish a forever kingdom and we know, we will know how to live in light of that. So I could stop here. I'm happy stopping there. It's enough, enough for me. But just for fun, quickly, we're gonna wrap our head around some other concepts. The main question, I think, when it comes to the end times in scripture, revolve around the return of Jesus. Not if it will happen, but when. And how will we know? What will happen to God's people? Where will the ones that have been dead go? What will happen to the Christians that are alive? Um, And so the first thing we have is called the millennium. Revelation, I think chapter 20, speaks of this thousand year reign of Christ where Satan is locked away. 
Dead Christians are resurrected, perhaps, reign with Christ during this millennium. Scholars debate on whether it's a literal thousand years or not. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> the, uh, so the first main end times question is when will Christ return in relation to the millennium? Will his return initiate that thousand year reign? This is premillennial, premillennialism. Will he come, returns, and that's what starts the um, thousand year reign. Will his return come at the end of the thousand year period? where Christians and like the gospel will advance without hindrance from Satan, um, his deception and his destruction is held at bay. Um, that would be post-millennialism. Or is Christ already reigning through his church right now as we stand here? Is the millennium just a figurative way to talk about a period of Christian and gospel advance? And Jesus will and could return at any moment to fully unite heaven and earth. This is amillennialism. Amillennialism, not like a version of it, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, the last one is called dispensationalism and is a sibling of premillennialism made popular by our friends in the Calvary Chapel camp. Um, this view says uh, Jesus' return initiates the millennium, so it's a premillennial view of sorts. And then depending on which dispensationalist you read or something, uh, we'll tell you that Jesus' return will come either before, during, or after a literal seven-year period of tribulation, at which point he will remove or exfiltrate or rapture the church that is alive on the earth at the time. So we have like the pre-post-millennial categories and then the pre-mid-post-tribulation rapture categories as well. There's probably even more terms and questions. I want to be honest about two things. One, I really had to Google a lot of that to make sure that I understood it properly. Two, in the most humble way, I don't care which view is right. Um, and I don't, what, I, what I mean is that if you do care, I don't want to dismiss that you care or say that you're wrong for caring or anything like that. Um, I don't even know that I have a view, to be honest. I care about how Jesus tells us to live in the light of the fact that he is returning. Um, but I don't, at this point in my life, have not concerned myself with trying to nail down my opinion on the order of the events. For this reason, primarily, apocalyptic literature, so Revelation, uh, Daniel, different parts in the prophets, and here in Matthew, um, it is highly figurative. It is prophetic poetry about things happening in the future, sometimes about multiple stages of future. So like something in the Old Testament will have like a fulfillment like in their immediate context, but it's also like telescoping out to something that happens at Jesus' first coming. And then maybe even also telescoping out to something that happens in his second coming. So it's prophetic poetry about things coming in the future. And it is designed not to give us facts, figures, and dates. This is just not what apocalyptic literature is designed to do. It is designed to bring warning or encouragement or support to God's people when they're going through really, really tough times. So trying to get facts and figures and dates and charts and graphs so that we can know the who, the what, the when, and the how, I think is the opposite of what we are meant to do with the literature that we are presented with in the Bible. We know today still how to read poetry. Um, we know when someone in our life is using a figure of speech and Ideally, know when to not take people literally. Someone says, I've got a splitting headache. We know that when they say that, their head is probably still in one piece. Um, someone says, my world is caving in. We know that they're just having a hard time. 
Someone says, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Another figure of speech. No one is actually eating a horse at all, let alone a whole horse by themselves. So trying to gather facts and figures and dates and charts and specifics from apocalyptic literature is like trying to glue someone's head back together after they tell you they got a splitting headache or presenting someone with a whole slow-roasted horse and saying, but you said that you could eat the whole horse. Um, so one of the ways this plays out in our reading of end times literature is the creation of the doctrine of the rapture. This is a very new doctrine, like a few hundred years old, which generally means we should go, hmm, that's a red flag. If it's like really that new, we should, doesn't mean that you have to throw it out or just dismiss it because it's new, but we should be extra cautious about it. It's a very new doctrine. You won't find many, I'm not saying you won't find any, but you won't find many in the early church writings that spell out a clear belief on the rapture, at least as we understand it today. Do a Google search if you'd like. You find a couple passages in the New Testament that talk, that claim to be about the rapture. And they are in the genre of apocalyptic literature, which is not meant to be taken as literally as we tend to take it. I don't mean that the apocalyptic literature isn't true or important or that we can't know what it means, just that it is highly figurative language used to encourage and instruct God's people when they're really going through it. So in our passage, in Matthew 24, 31, it talks about the angels gathering the elect from the four winds. Our literal brains who don't know how to read apocalyptic literature go, angels, gather, wind, we must be floating in the sky. That's how God's gonna get us. That's a very literal understanding of what God must be doing here. So we think, oh, that kind of contributes to our understanding of the rapture, but that's like offering someone a whole horse when they say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. That's not how we treat apocalyptic literature. That verse, I think, is figurative language to talk about the spreading out of the gospel throughout the known world quickly and immediately. It spread to the ends of the earth. That's like what the gospel of Acts is about. Um, again, in 24 verses 40 through 41, it says one will be taken and another left. Figurative imagery about how sudden the coming of the Lord will be. Also, taken could mean taken by the Lord, as in being gathered, maybe. But just one verse before that. I'm gonna find it and read it. Um, where is it? I just told you, 40, 41? Yeah. In the days, this is 38. In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. So that was God's judgment coming on the people, the wicked generation of Noah. It took them away. Just one verse later, talking about these two groups of people. One, they're working on grinding out uh, grain at the mill. The other was a work in the fields. It talks about them being taken away. Now we take our understanding of a verse in Thessalonians about being caught up and we're like, oh yeah, the person's getting taken away, just like the rapture, just like I thought. And we're kind of bringing a pre-understanding of that to then. But I think that that verse is talking about being taken away in judgment. Like one person will be there and remain and one person will experience the judgment of God. I think that's what that verse means. Same thing goes with the language in Thessalonians. Um, it says we'll be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds or in the air or something. Again, I think this is more figurative language about the resurrection of the dead and those who are alive at Christ's return just joining Jesus as he begins to establish his kingdom, whether or not that's the millennium or just the, the end of the age where Jesus unites heaven and earth fully. Um, we don't know. We don't have to know. 
But all these things are highly figurative language and we're trying to like make it so like wooden and clear and like I, I can wrap my, fing- my hands around it. Um, the rapture may be a thing. Um, it might not be a thing. I tend to think that it's not. Um, the point is though, we don't know when or how this ending of the age will happen. We do know how Jesus wants us to live in light of the fact that he's uh, coming back. And we should be careful when we read apocalyptic language so that we don't make literal things that are not meant to be made literal. Now, if those things are forming the foundation for how you think about the end, not, you know, taking Jesus at his word, saying we don't know when, and so we're gonna live the way that he wants us to live, um, if that's how we think about the end, then uh, have at it as far as like underst- coming to your own opinions and beliefs. Read and study and form your opinions and beliefs firmly founded in the scriptures. Uh, this is only even enabled by the Holy Spirit and it can be checked and confirmed through like humble participation um, with the people of God in the church community that you're committed to. And so you don't have to be afraid of, of reading and learning and speculating and wondering what does he mean with this passage? Like, go for it. That's totally fine. Um, ideas formed and born in the dark and isolation are usually weird. Um, ideas and interpretation that are like enabled by the spirit and refined within a church community are usually great or at least acceptable. Um, there's Matthew 24. In two weeks, dig into um, how we live today as a result of what we're reading. We'll look at Matthew 25. But for now, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word, even the parts that we really don't understand. Um, And I just ask that you would um, help us to um, to see you clearly in all that confuses us and all that we don't understand, that you would still bring us back to you and to your presence, to trust in you, faith in you, dependence on you, enabling us to be faithful to you. I pray that even we just get a, a glimpse of that right now as we enter into a time where we lift you up in, our, in song, where we sing to you. So would you be with us as we do that? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.